Hey everyone and welcome to De Facto. This is a podcast from the perspective of two students who are currently trying to survive the IB. I'm Judy. And I'm Amelia. And today, instead of suffering in quarantine, I'm actually making a podcast from the comfort of my own home. Yay, that's so exciting that you're back home and not in a hotel room. Okay, so to start this week's episode, today we're going to be talking about the old brain. So just as a quick intro, let's go back a few hundred years. So imagine this, you're at the doctor's and they ask you to sit down as they get out a weird metal device and start measuring your head. They feel for shapes and bumps on your head before offering you a diagnosis. You, dear child, are destined for great things. You are intelligent, sympathetic, and will find fame in your years to come. Um, what just happened? Well, welcome to phrenology. Phrenology is a pseudoscience, which basically means it's a collection of beliefs or practices that are mistakenly regarded as being based on the scientific method, when in reality, they're not backed up by scientific research. So the whole idea of phrenology gained particular interest in the UK in the 1800s, and it is the idea that you can determine somebody's personality based on the shape of their skull. So phrenologists believe that all human brains are made up of a series of distinct and different organs that can be attributed to different personality traits. The more you use a specific part of the brain, it grows like an like a muscle and vice versa if you don't use it then it shrinks and in this way the skull was believed to conform to the shape of your brain now whilst a lot of scientists at the time disputed this approach to neuroscience it gained particular publish uh, particular popularity among the general public because of something called subjective validity that is that it tells people about themselves and truths about who they are it helps people understand themselves but at the same time whilst it wasn't even based on science it also gave rise to huge uh, gave rise to huge inequalities in particular between different classes and races so the upper class um, validated their status by attributing it to the ideal shape of their brains. And in this way, it was the lower class's fault for not working hard enough that they were not in the upper class. Thankfully, this theory began to fall down the drain in the mid 1800s as research proje- progressed and people began to accept that this was a load of garbage. But we realised that the brain actually conforms to the shape of the skull, not vice versa, that the brain is one single organ, not several different ones, that areas of the brain do not grow like muscles when we train them. However, there is an element of truth in the idea that the brain is spatially organised. It can be split up into different regions linked to different functions. This is called localisation of functions. So whilst this seemed a bit of a odd and definitely not based on scientific truth uh, theory, it caused biologists to think more critically about the connection between biology, the biology of our brain and our thoughts and our emotions. And this gave rise to a lot more research on how the brain actually works. That is so cool. Actually, you know, when Amelia first said, let's talk about phrenology, I was like, what? We have, I have no idea what phrenology is, but it's actually so cool. And it ties in really well to what we're gonna be talking about today. But before we talk about that, I thought we would talk about a really common myth first. So, have you heard that we only use 10% of our brain? 
I mean, if it, th- this was true, you know, it would be so cool. Like, imagine if you were somehow able to access the remaining 90% of your brain, maybe you could do things like levitate or telekinesis or, you know, forget the 18 digits of pi that I know. I could know all of the digits of pi and, you know, why would I do something like, imagine, um, you know, remember all the digits of pi? I could remember so many other things. I literally wouldn't even have to go to school. Like, life would be so cool. We would literally go beyond being human today. And, you know, maybe that is why this theory is so popular. But unfortunately, it's not true. So, first of all, anatomically, which 10% are people saying that we're using? Well, I'm really confused about this because, you know, does that mean that if I just cut off 90% of my brain, I'll be fine? Well, this can't be true because, as we'll explore in our next few episodes, different regions of the brain are needed for different things. So, if I just cut off 90% of my brain, that doesn't sound like a very good idea. So if that's not the case, do people mean that, you know, only 10% of neurons which make up our brain and central nervous system are active? Well, this also isn't very possible because neurons work by this thing called action potentials. And basically what happens is that each neuron being active activates the neurons next to it or near it. So if, you know, the idea is that we only ever use one neural pathway, then we have so many neurons that we're not using. And basically, this just means a lot of wasted space in our brain that we could be using, you know, we could be using this energy for other things. So evolution doesn't, you know, tend to keep things that we don't need. So there are arguments against this, for example, in the appendix. But even with the appendix, people aren't sure if there is no use for the appendix or there actually is a use that we haven't discovered yet today. An example of evolution not keeping things we don't need is the immune system. So for example, after a pathogen is wiped out, you don't keep all the cells that were used to fight this infection. You just keep a few memory cells to make sure that your body won't spend energy that it doesn't need. And it's the same theory here. If we only use 10% of our brain, why is why are we using so much energy to maintain the remaining 90%? I mean, that's literally a dead weight. So, you know, the brain is about 1.3 kilograms, and that's kind of a lot of weight to be carrying around, you know, so why would 90% go unused? Any weight for your body is energy, because, you know, mass is energy. Thank you, Einstein. So energy is used to maintain this weight, because otherwise cells would be dead. So it kind of doesn't make any sense that we would use 10% of our brain, both anatomically and in terms of energy use. And furthermore, brain scans, specifically fMRI, which are functional magnetic resonance imaging scans, show that nearly every region of the brain lights up when you do even simple tasks like walking or picking up an object. So the brain is actually even still active when you sleep. For example, the somatosensory area is still active, and this is basically what helps you to sense your surroundings, and that's why, you know, even in sleep, you know where you are and you're just not floating around in random space. So, also, the brain is only 3% of your body weight, but requires 20% of all body's energy. So, you know, if it was only 10% active, that would be rather silly. So I'm sorry, but unfortunately, we won't be flying anytime soon. Yeah, I think that's really interesting and kind of ties into phrenology a bit in the way that perhaps people still think it's true because it would unlock so much potential for what we could do. But unfortunately, that's not the case. So now moving on to our first episode, looking at the brain, and we're going to be talking about the old brain. And the old brain is essentially in control of all the basic fundamental things that we need for survival. Yeah, I think that's a perfect summary of what we're talking about. So let's start with why it's called the old brain. And please don't call us out on the fact that we just spent so long on a side note about, you know, before actually getting into the main topic. 
Anyway, why is it called the old brain? Because of evolution. So I know I'm not the biggest fan of evolution. In fact, when we started learning about evolution in school, I said to me that I can't believe we're learning about evolution. Why do we have to do this? But hear me out here, okay? So before we talk about evolution, let's take a quick trip down our ancestry. And when I talk about ancestry, I don't mean genealogy. Genealogy? Sorry, I don't know how to pronounce that. So kingdom animalia, which is what we are, developed, believe it or not, from peripheral. And yes, I'm talking about sponges. So at first I really struggled with classification actually, but then I realised that it makes a lot of sense. Because if you think about it, we were sponges at first, and that means that we were really primitive. And then we got hydra and jellyfish, which you know, as you can imagine, are in the sea, they're round, like sponges. And then we had worms, which were the first to develop bilateral symmetry, like humans, where you know, you have your left hand and your right hand, basically you can split yourself in half and that's kind of a mirror image of yourself. So that just means, you know, like I said, you're made of two halves. Then we had annelids, which are worms, and mollusks, squids but also clams, and anthropods like ants. And you see where we're going. I'm going with this, we got more complex. So finally we get to chordata, which is what we are. Why is this relevant to the brain? Because as Amelia mentioned, earlier animals, evolutionarily that is, didn't have brains like ours. As with most things, brains started simple. These early animals just needed to be able to eat, to breathe, and to rest. But more complex brains like the ones we have today do other things, like reasoning for example, like how I just got to this conclusion. So how evolution did this, again, it started simple. We share that simple part of the brain, that old brain, with these primitive mammals, and we just have more parts. That's why it's called the old brain. So the parts that we'll be talking about today are the parts that were present in the earliest appearances of the brain, and that's why we thought it would be a good idea to start here. So first of all, we thought we would talk about the brainstem, which is basically where all of this old brain is taking place. So the brainstem is the most inferior part of the brain, so basically it means that it's structurally continuous with the brain and spinal cord. So just imagine that if your brain is a big blob at the top of your head it kind of, and the spinal cord connects down your back, then the brainstem is just the thing adjacent to the two. So what happens in the brainstem? Well, it's where motor and sensory systems connect with the peripheral nervous system, which is basically the nervous system that is not the brain or spinal cord. And these are what pass through the brainstem. So, in case that doesn't make a lot of sense, basically what that means is that the way you're able to develop responses is linked to the brainstem. So, for example, there's the corticospinal tract, which is basically what tr controls your motor responses, which is what, you know, allows you to pick up things, for example. And then there's also the posterior column medial lemniscus pathway, which adjusts for fine touch, vibrations, and proprioception, i.e. knowing where you are in space. So you can see like just from these two examples that the brainstem is really helpful in just helping us make sense of who we are and how we move. Finally, there's also the spinothalamic tract, which is basically what allows you to sense pain, temperature, itching, and crude touch. So just a note on touch, I mentioned fine touch just now, it opposes to crude touch because fine touch is where you know you've been touched. Like for example, if I hit myself on the table right now, I know that you know the the table has touched my hand. But for crude touch, I would know that the table I would know that I have been hit somewhere, but I wouldn't know where. So that's just the difference between crude and fine touch. So going back to the brainstem, there are three components of the brainstem called the medulla oblongata, the midbrain, and the pons. While we aren't exploring the midbrain today, it essentially regulates auditory and visual sensory information. And so, in conclusion, the brainstem basically controls the most basic things, i.e. breathing, swallowing, heart rate, 
blood pressure consciousness and whether you're awake or sleepy, which just really ties into what Amelia said just now. Yeah, so now having a look at uh, one of the parts of the old brain, and this is called reticular formation. And this kind of spans all the way up the old brain. And it's in an area called the tegmentum of the brainstem. Um, and so the word reticular itself means net-like, and this is where the um, structure actually got its name, because the fibres in the structure um, look very much like a net. So it is a very diverse structure, and we call it heterogeneous, which means that it's composed of lots of dissimilar elements. Because of this, it is able to carry out a wide range of functions, including production of neurotransmitters, um, it helps modulate sensory and motor functions, and it's also involved in controlling arousal and consciousness. So, um, the, so when we talk about arousal, we're not talking about, you know, the romantic kind of arousal, but more just kind of an awareness. So the, um, the reticular formation receives sensory inf information from the rest of your body, and this information comes as a general awareness, not a specific one. So it sends the, um, the reticular formation then sends this information to the cortex where we can further process it. But, in, um, but this is why, for example, when we're asleep and there are bright lights or loud noises, we wake up because it's detected by the reticular formation and then passed up to the cortex. So I mentioned neurotransmitters and this is because a lot of the sites of neurotransmitter production are actually in the reticular formation such as um, dopamine producers and serotonin producers. So we can see that whilst it is a very complex and varied part of the brainstem, um, it carries out a wide range of basic functions needed for survival. So now moving on to the thalamus. So the thalamus is kind of at the top of your um, at the top of your brainstem, or at the top of the old brain. And it's symmetrical, so there's one half in each hemisphere. Just mentioning thalamus, I immediately thought of the hypothalamus, which I think is one of the first parts of the brain we learn about in school. Is that linked to the thalamus in any way? Yeah, so the hypothalamus is so-called because it's just below the thalamus. Um, as far as I'm aware, I mean, they probably are linked in some way, but not obviously so. I think it's more to do with the location, but don't quote me on that one because I might be wrong. Um, so looking at the thalamus again, it's essentially a relay station for sensory information. And it receives this information and then sends it up to the cortex. So the thalamus contains several different nuclei, which are specialised to different functions and therefore specialised to um, receive different um, senses. So let's look at an example. So say I'm looking at the screen in front of me. As far as my eyes are concerned, this is just light waves entering the eye and hitting the retina. Without the brain, they mean nothing. This visual information is from your retina to, sorry, this visual information is sent from your retina to one of these nuclei in the thalamus called the lateral geniculate th nucleus, which can begin to decipher this information. From here, the information is then sent to the appropriate area in the cortex, and it's then that I can go, right, 
that's a phone or that's a screen or whatever it is you're seeing. So in this way, the thalamus kind of acts as a gatekeeper for all the information traveling to the cortex, directing it to the right place in the cortex. But this isn't the end of the story. Not only does the thalamus send information up to the cortex, it can also receive information from the cortex and modulate it further to help the cortex understand it. So information can be sent through fibers from the cortex to the thalamus, where as I said, the thalamus can modulate this information before returning it to the cortex. I think that's super cool because it just goes to show how, you know how Amina mentioned the reticular formation and the thalamus both interact with the cortex, which is another part of the brain, wow I'm talking way too fast, which is another part of the brain that we won't be exploring today but I think it just goes to show this earlier idea from phrenology of how, you know, the brain is actually so interconnected and it's not just separate organs but rather if you must think of it as separate organs, they kind of like function as an organ system where they all have different functions but ultimately they interact lots with each other and come together just to form this really complex organ that we're just beginning to understand. So next we thought we'd talk about the pons, which is the part of the brainstem, and that is spelled P-O-N-S, not P-O-N-D-S, just in case you wanted that clarification. So I thought it was really interesting to explore this because the Latin actually means bridge, and it's a perfect description because the pons connects the two hemispheres of the cerebrum, which is the front part of your brain, and the cerebral cortex, which is grey matter, which we will dedicate an episode to later on to the medulla oblongata, which we will further explore later on. Wow, that was too many, but basically it's just a bridge between two areas of the brain. So what's it involved in? It's involved in arousal, breathing, relaying sensory information, and sleep. So specifically for breathing, what the pons does is it works with the medulla to generate this breathing system. And that's therefore, you know, one of the functions that we link to the old brain where you kind of do this unconsciously. And that's why the pons is so important. And in fact, it's been suggested that if there's any damage to your pons, it will in most cases result in immediate death. So another function of the pons that I thought I would explore further was this idea of it in sleep. What the pons actually does is it activates inhibitory senses centers in the medulla to prevent movement during sleep and you can see how important this is because if you were moving during sleep especially during the dreaming phase of sleep trust me if your dreams are anything like you know most people's dreams you do not want to be moving around and trying to act out your dreams so the pons is really useful another really important part of the pons is that it's actually the part of um it's actually the part of the brain where several cranial nerves which is nerves that originate from the brain originate in the pons. Sorry, that was very unnecessarily complex. But basically, several very important nerves start in the pons. So one of them is called the trigeminal nerve. And this is the nerve that controls sensory information from your face and chewing, and also information about pain and temperature. Similarly, there's the abducens or abducens nerve, which controls eye movement from side to side. So basically, think of your eyes moving in towards your nose and away from your nose. Another one is the facial nerve, which basically controls face movement. This facial nerve is incredible because it actually also detects all the small movements. So the specific functions of the facial nerve are it detects eyes watering, your mouth salivating, taste, hearing, facial sensation, and control. So it's, you know, as you can see from these three nerves so far, all of them are very important in the control of your face and your eyes. Finally, there's also the vestibulocochlear nerve. Does the cochlea sound familiar? Basically, the cochlea is the part of your ear, 
and it's here that um, auditory sensations but also equilibrium is controlled. So actually, your organs of balance are housed in your inner ear. Basically, there's fluid there, and whenever you do something, for instance, if you turn your head, the fluid causes the sensory hair cells in your ear to move, and these signals are sent to your brain. That's why, actually, it takes a while for you to get back to normal after spinning lots of turns, like, you know, when you stand up and you spin round and round in games, or because you're bored, or I don't know why people spin, it's terrible, it gives me a headache. But the reason for the headache is your vestibular system, which is basically the system that maintains your balance, needs the time to get settled back down, so it actually doesn't react that quickly. And that's why, after you spin, you, can't, you, know, you tend to feel, um, feel the headache that is so typical of it. So what happens if your pons gets injured? Well, the most common things we see are sleep disturbances, sensory problems, arousal dysfunction, and in severe cases, a coma. I thought I would explain one part of this because it's particularly interesting, and that's locked-in syndrome, which is basically where you are kind of trapped in this state where you can't move your four limbs, and the only thing that you can move is your eyes. So. Locked-in syndrome usually arises from damage to your pons, most commonly by decreased blood flow or a bleeding in the pons as a result of a stroke or blood clot. So don't worry because it's not that common unless you know you have a stroke or blood clot. So what locked-in syndrome does is, as I explained just now, it disrupts your ability to control your muscles. And this leads to quadriplegia, which is what I talked about just now, this total loss of control of all four of your limbs as well as your torso. And it also gives you an inability to speak so you can no longer talk. And that's why people suffering from locked-in syndrome can only communicate with their eyes. There's another thing that um, similar worrying thing that happens if your pons is damaged, and that is called lacunar stroke. So basically what this is, is the blockage of the arteries that supply the blood to pons. So you can see that the pons is such an important part of your brain, and therefore you can imagine that you know if it doesn't have arteries and therefore doesn't have the oxygen, that these cells need to respire and perform their functions, something really bad is going to happen, right? Well, in this case of a lacuna stroke, what happens is numbness, paralysis, loss of memory, difficulty in speaking and walking, coma, and in severe cases, death. So you can see how the pons is so extremely important and also how, you know, any injury to it can be, in some cases, fatal. That's really interesting, uh, specifically when you were talking about locked-in, because one of the very first medical books that I actually read was called Locked In by Richard Marsh. And it follows, I'm going to go off on a bit of a tangent here, sorry. But <laughs> it follows the story of a man who um, one day he falls into a locked in state. And gradually his, it's, it's kind of about his journey through locked in syndrome. And he does in the end make a full recovery. But he acknowledges at the end of the book that his recovery was quite unusual and a lot of people with locked in don't make a full recovery but one of the hardest things in the beginning especially for the patient is that they have no way of communicating to their medical team to their family that they're still there and um in particular i read about some research where actually one way that they could test if um patients were in a locked in state or um, were in a vegetative state was they put them through an MRI scanner and they asked them to think about playing a game of tennis and for patients who were in locked in syndrome they could observe the um, kind of the areas of the brain associated with tennis were firing when they were asked to imagine playing tennis so they could see that they still have this awareness and this still cognitive um, like ability despite not being able to control any parts of their body.
So anyways, that's a bit of a digression. <laughs> yeah, but I think that's super cool. And I think one of the things that I was always really scared of, like when I first learned about lockdown syndrome was it just sounds so daunting to imagine not being able to communicate that you're still there. And I think that's also particularly interesting because I know that a lot of research into the brain, especially a lot that's being reported nowadays, is how we communicate with people that are in locked-in syndrome. So it's particularly interesting that you mentioned all the neurons firing, and I know work is also being done on the specific neurons that fire when you're trying to form sentences if you know they're trying to see if they're actually specific words that we can connect with these people and see if they can actually use these neurons to figure out what they're saying of course that's still really in the early stages and there's also exciting developments with ai modeling as well but yeah i thought that was really interesting so thank you that's really cool and it just goes to show you how incredible our technology is becoming but anyways we've digressed a bit so sorry but back to the old brain so next we're going to look at the medulla oblongata, which from now on I'll just refer to as the medulla because it's shorter. <laughs> so this is again part of the brainstem that connects to the spinal cord and it's in front of the cerebellum, which we'll talk about in a bit. So initially it was actually thought to be an extension of the spinal cord with no distinct functions of its own. However, in 1806, a, phys- a physician named uh, Legalois I've probably said that wrong, I'm very sorry, found that he could um, that he could remove both the cortex and the cerebellum of rabbits, and yet they still continued to breathe. Yet when a section of the medulla was removed, breathing stopped immediately. From this, it was concluded that the medulla is kind of the respiratory centre, and further was the centre of a lot of vital functions such as heart rate and breathing. So to control the cardiovascular system, I found this really cool. It's quite confusing and there's lots of long words, but I'm going to try and explain it because it's really cool. So to control the cardiovascular system, the medulla contains a nucleus called the nucleus of the solitary tract. And this receives information from stretch receptors called baroreceptors in our blood vessels. And these receptors detect when the walls of Um, detect when the walls of the blood vessels expand and contract and therefore they can detect changes in blood pressure. These changes in blood pressure are related back to the medulla which brings it back and makes sure that uh, the blood pressure is always at its healthy equilibrium and where it kind of wants to sit. So for example say you have a drop in blood pressure The drop in blood pressure is detected by these baroreceptors in your blood vessels, which then sends this information back to the nucleus of the solitary tract in the medulla. The solitary tract then activates another part of the medulla called the ventrolateral medulla, which controls our uh, sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems. So in short, your sympathetic your sympathetic nervous system excites the body whilst the parasympathetic nervous system relaxes it. Therefore, when low blood pressure is detected, the sympathetic nervous system is stimulated and the parasympathetic nervous system is inhibited to increase the heart rate and hence increase the blood blood pressure. And this is a reflexive action, which means it happens kind of automatically. 
That sounds really cool. So just to check that I'm understanding you right, basically there's not just one section of the medulla, it's actually separate sections and two of those sections, one of them receives the signals from these blood vessels and the other one kind of tells the blood vessels to be excited or relaxed, is that right? Yeah, so one of them receives the um, the, the first one, the, um, the solitary tract nucleus, receives the information from the blood vessels, and then this is related back to the heart, which changes the beating of the heart. So next I mentioned that it also controls the respiratory system. So how does it do this? So firstly, if we look at um, our respiratory system, so this is when air is inhaled and exhaled. And essentially the movement of air is caused by pressure changes in the lungs. So when we inhale, the muscles in our diaphragm contract and our diaphragm flattens and our ribs, because um, so the intercostal, external intercostal muscles um, holding our ribs and geez laughing right now, because this is a throwback to biology year, uh, year 12. But anyways, the external intercostal muscles supporting our ribs contract and our ribs move um, up and out and overall the effect of this is that it increases the volume of our lungs which decreases the pressure in our lungs so this decrease in pressure means that the pressure inside our lungs is lower than outside so air rushes in to make the pressure equal again similarly when we exhale the internal intercostal muscles contract and our diaphragm relaxes so that air so that the volume decreases and air is pushed out so the medulla uh, controls our basal breathing rate, which is just kind of like our normal breathing when we're not thinking about it. And it does this by, by um, and, it's, and this is controlled by what we call dorsal um, inspiratory groups. And these are located at the back of the medulla. So the neurons here fire by themselves without any input from other parts of the body. So this means that essentially you could chop up you could chop off everything apart from the um, apart from the medulla, and yeah, the these neurons would still fire. They wouldn't do anything because they're not connected to anything, but they'd still fire. Um, so these neurons innervate the diaphragm and cause them to contract via the, a nerve called the phrenic nerve or the phrenic nerve, and this contraction of the diaphragm obviously um, allows you to inhale and then when the um, neurons are not being fired your diaphragm relaxes again and you exhale. So this is going on constantly and um, constantly controls your breathing rate. But when breathing needs to increase such as when you're doing exercise, this, this dorsal respiratory groups also innervate the external intercostal muscles which further increases the um, volume of the lungs upon inhalation so you can take in more air so because these are spontaneously firing we keep breathing whilst we're asleep and unconscious and therefore obviously this is essential for survival so the medulla can actually also detect increases in levels of uh, carbon dioxide in the blood and decreases in levels of oxygen and the way it does this is in the arteries above um, our heart, um, so in the aortic arch and the carotid, and in the carotid arteries which go up to your brain, um, 
we have what we call chemoreceptive neurons. And it's these chemoreceptive neurons that detect the changes in oxygen and carbon dioxide concentration. In particular, we don't want too much carbon dioxide because eventually this converts into acid when it reacts with water and acid in blood, not great. We kind of want to avoid that. So um, these chemoreceptive neurons um, pick up the changes in concentration and send signals to the inspiratory neurons in the medulla uh, telling them to respond appropriately. So what I'm hearing is like, not only is the medulla essential for our regular breathing, like what I'm doing right now without even thinking about it, not only is it doing that, when I cause it to have some changes, like for instance, when I do exercise, it actually is able to de detect that and adjust it accordingly. Yeah, so it's pretty cool. Um, so before we move on, I thought I'd just talk very briefly about the effects of heroin on the medulla oblongata. So in our chemistry lesson the other day, our teacher likes to talk about lots of weird and wonderful things. And he brought in heroin and its effect in the medulla. And I was like, oh, that's brilliant. I'll talk about it here. So in the medulla and all around the body, we have these things called opioid receptors, which, um, which allow opioids to bind to it. Um, and opioids are pain relief. So things like morphine, heroin, they're all opioids. So when you have too much heroin, it binds to these opioid receptors in the medulla, reducing the, the stimulation of these inspiratory neurons and therefore reducing our breathing rate. And it's, this is one of the reasons why a heroin overdose can actually cause asphyxiation and cause you to die. That is so cool. I mean, not, not taking drugs. Taking drugs is not cool. But the effects are so cool. And I think like another one of the opioid, uh, opioids that we mentioned that we talked about in this podcast actually is codeine. And we talked about it when we talked about anesthetics. So you can see like that's super cool because as you can imagine, when you talk about anesthetics, you're talking about pain relief. And that is exactly the point of these opioids. You want to relieve the pain. Although, you know, unfortunately, in some cases, people do take it as recreational drug use. So I think it's really interesting to see the effect of these drugs on our systems because they not just they don't just affect specific parts of our body, they affect the brain as well. And we can see how they affect these parts essential for survival, such as the medulla. I think we should dedicate a whole episode to drugs. I think it'll be really interesting. <laughs> so, anyway, now we've talked about that slight digression, let's talk about the cerebellum. So the cerebellum is the top part of the brainstem, and it's found in the birds, in fish, and in all vertebrates. As a side note, do you know that we're most evolutionarily similar to birds? Like, I'm not kidding, out of all the chordata, which is basically like one of the classes of evolution, we're the most similar to birds. And my dad would be horrified because he's scared of birds. But anyway, if that make, doesn't make sense, think about this. The five chordata are fish, amphibians, reptiles, birds, and mammals. And the reason why I'm talking about this is because I really struggled with this concept. So fish, you know, evolved from the vertebrates in sea, so of course they're first. Then the rest are all tetrapods, so they have four limbs. And yes, birds have four limbs because they have two wings and two feet. So amphibians were next because the other three all have amniotic eggs, which basically just means that, you know, they have eggs that won't dry out on land. If that doesn't make sense, that's why frog eggs are in water and why tadpoles are in water, because they dry out. Amniotic eggs don't. 
So then we have reptiles, pickup birds and mammals can regulate their body temperature. So, as you can see from my well-reasoned argument, which comes from this ability to reason from the brain, um, we're most similar to birds evolutionarily out of the other codata. So, getting back to the cerebellum. What the cerebellum does is it gets information from the sensory system and then controls motor movements. And this is really interesting because I think that's the part of the nervous system that we first learn about. We always learn about the relay arc, which is when you talk about when you touch something hot and then you kind of bring your hand back immediately. And how we're always taught that is you touch something hot, the receptors in your fingers sense this hot thing, then this signal travels around a sensory nerve to a relay nerve in your central nervous system, which basically just passes it back out to a motor system to a motor neuron, which is what then pulls your hand away. So this is actually controlled by the cerebellum, and it's this cerebellum that coordinates all these motor movements. So specifically what the cerebellum does is it controls posture and balance. So basically what it does is it has sensors for adjustments and movements. Look at what happens when you drink something, for example. The cerebellum, um, when you drink alcohol specifically, the cerebellum is immediately impaired and that's why you can't walk in a straight line or touch your own nose because the cerebellum is the thing that controls these. When you drink, the cerebellum is impaired and therefore these things are no longer controlled. Another thing that the cerebellum controls is coordination. So specifically, it times muscle actions so that the body can move smoothly and that's why we're not jerking around constantly all the time. Another thing that it controls is speech as well as motor learning. So it helps with fine tuning and practice, for instance, learning how to ride a bike. And it's been suggested that this is part of the reason why, you know, when you start learning how to ride a bike and after you've learned how to ride it, after a really long time, you still know how to ride that bike because of this motor learning thing, which is coordinated by the cerebellum. Um, finally, one thing that researchers are still debating is that the, whether or not um, the cerebellum plays a role in thinking. So there is some evidence that it, it's involved in processing language or your mood, making a decision, your attention, your fear response, your reward system, but we're not sure about that yet. So some really interesting facts about cerebellum. One, it's only 10% of the weight, but controls 50% of the brain's neurons. Like, that is so crazy to think about. It literally, wow, that, that, that ratio does my head in. So that's, it's just so incredible to think about. And you can just see from that how important the cerebellum is. Another thing, um, so damage to the cerebellum, while it doesn't lead to paralysis or intellectual impairment, it does lead to very worrying consequences, specifically lack of balance, slower movements, and shaking. The main symptom of the dysfunction of the cerebellum is called ataxia, which is basically a loss of muscle coordination and control. And then that leads to speech difficulties. Other symptoms are blurry vision, hard to swallow, tiredness, difficulties with precise muscle control, and changes in mood or thinking. So I think it's really interesting to see how kind of these symptoms of these diseases that you get after some part of your brain is not functioning, functioning as it should. I really cannot talk today. It's not functioning as it should. And I think it's really interesting to see how that actually links to the actual function of the brain. And I think that's really been something interesting to explore where you see all these damages and to these parts of the brain tell you more about what they actually do. Yeah, that's really interesting, especially learning about like kind of the balance and how we balance ourselves. Um, so that was kind of a little overview with a few digressions about the old brain. Um, I think it's really interesting to kind of 
go back to the very beginning and look at how the brain actually started and actually how this old brain forms the basis for a lot of um, animals' brains and and therefore it's um, a lot of its functions are involved in basic survival like breathing and sensing our surroundings and a heart rate and things like that. So yeah, I hope you've enjoyed. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye!